welcome to episode 29 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And joining us this week as our extremely special guest is writer, director, producer, winner of a host of awards, including the Fine Arts Film Festival's Best Narrative Feature for her first feature film entitled Innuendo. It's Sarah Lamberg. Hello, how are you? Really well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As well as finding out about your experiences as a Melbourne filmmaker at the Cannes Film Festival and what you're working on at the moment, we're going to be reviewing William Oldroyd's debut feature, Lady Macbeth, as well as sharing our top three women on the edge. But first, here's Lady Macbeth. Do you love me? Of course. Do you adore me? Of course. Through hell and high water, I will follow you. You're home. You've acted so very shamelessly and so very stupidly. You will never see that man again. For his feature film debut, theatre director William Oldroyd has adapted Nikolai Leskov's 1865 novella Lady Macbeth of the Matensk District to desolate moors and forbidding woods in coastal Northumberland. Teenager Catherine, played by Florence Pugh, has been sold into marriage with Alexander, who is a wealthy and bored middle-aged man who shows little interest in Catherine beyond her domestic roles. Shortly after their marriage, Alexander leaves their austere mansion to attend to work, leaving Catherine to manage the house and to the attentions of groomsman James, played by musician Cosmo Jarvis. The scene is then set for a film to live up to its tagline of to dishonour and disobey. Sarah, did this film work for you? It really did, but on a very interesting level. It was... One of the only films I've ever seen where every character was equally unlikable. (laughs) (laughs) And that was really what did it for me in this film. Like there wasn't any kind of a black and white, you know, these guys are good and these guys are bad kind of thing. They were just all, at least for me personally, equally unlikable, (laughs) which was kind of really refreshing. Right. Even the little kid. Yeah. I was thinking when the little kid came oh, on, yes, that, yeah. you know, this is going to be the like, no, he was a little <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Um, did, what did you make of this being a feature film debut from somebody who's come from a lot of theatre? Did you feel like it, he lo- it lost its theatrical background or did you feel like he brought a lot of that sort of um, knowledge to the screen? I didn't actually know that before I watched a film, which is a pretty good thing. Yeah, I mean, I th- certainly performances weren't theatrical in a traditional sense. Sometimes theatre directors tend to still provide, you know, theatrical performances on screen and that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. A screen is a very different media with much more nuanced, smaller performances. And and from that point of view, I think he'd done brilliantly. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's an interesting example of a film that's sort of mostly set in one location, um, or, or albeit sprawling. We've got this big house and then sort of the grounds upon which it's situated. But he does a lot of... I think the camera, there's a lot of investigation of the setting, which I found really interesting. The idea that the house is exerting some sort of a weird you know force over these characters who all sort of go a little bit stir crazy Mm. which is you know it's a well-worn cinematic trope i guess but i think i think it really worked in this case what did you think andy i really liked it yeah Yeah. one of my favorite aspects of it was the cinematography which was made by a melbourne cinematographer ari wegner who featured on ruin the 2015 film that we reviewed about 10 episodes ago, I think it was. And she was phenomenal in that as well, I thought, really capturing this sort of landscape. I mean, it was a completely different one because that was shot in Cambodia and here we are in Northumberland. Mm. But it was felt like every scene was shot at dusk and or there was always this sort of brooding low sky 
And Sarah and I talked to her briefly at the screening we were at in Cinema Nova and she was saying that this was something that she'd been kind of involved in from quite early on and that she was really, really keen to be able to get and get this whole almost not quite a Wuthering Heights but that sort of like oppressive landscape because it was, there's only a couple of locations really. There's the woods and then there's the mansion itself. And she said, you know, it was very, very difficult sometimes to be able to you know, get that, even though often it wasn't shot at dusk, it did feel like that for a lot of the time because it was so oppressive. And I thought that was a really, really key part of it. The main thing I really loved as well as that was Florence Pugh's performance. I thought she was phenomenal. I haven't seen The Falling, which was the film that she was in last year that really put her into other people's attentions, but she's got about five or six films mm. on the cards at the moment because I think a lot of people have already picked up on on her performance. Yeah, she was great. It was kind of random seeing Cosmo Jarvis too. He was a yes. singer who I was very into five years ago and sort of <laughs> forgotten about. And now up, up he pops as like the sexy farm boy mm. who um, starts this sort of illicit affair. Mm. What I found really interesting too was you're right in the sense that there's no sympathetic characters and like she was the this uh, main character her character I found really, really interesting. I thought what I admired about the film was that it had a sort of intersectional consciousness. So it wasn't like saying it wasn't, it didn't go in the direction of, oh, here's a strong uh, white woman, um, you know, casting off the shackles of oppression. You, you see her acting, you know, because of her class situation in this film. You see her subjugating other characters to pretty horrendous yes. things as well, yeah, yeah. which I really admired that the film refused to give in to mm. sort of a simplistic attitude towards um, th- those politics, I guess. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like, given that you found so many of the characters unlikable, did you find it difficult to relate to them? Or- Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just someone who doesn't really believe in the whole thing that you have to be able to like characters to be able to relate to them. I, I don't usually watch a film and relate to the nicest character in it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm, I'm like you. I like interesting characters that have depth mm. and, and several layers about them and, and that's what I found a lot in this film. So from that point of view, I could definitely relate to aspects of many of the characters. Mm, because while I was watching it, I was reminded a bit of Innuendo, your film, in that there is no, like you were saying, there's it's all just grey, there's no black and white, there's this thing where you're kind of pushed to empathise with this leading female character who's kind of comes from this very difficult circumstances and is trying to, like, strike um, her own identity into her life or to be given a chance to express herself and, and to deal with you know, the issues that she's been presented with you know, involuntarily because of society or because of religion or because of other sort of oppressive forces. And so I thought I was really glad that you were able to come on the show to talk about it because I thought, well, this is an interesting taboo feature for somebody, it's also taking, you know, a, you know, we don't know about the budget specifically, but it obviously, you know, they were working with a pretty smaller budget like like they would, but I imagine William Aldroyd will have a bigger one next time around for him. But um, I was wondering if you, if you could kind of empathise with the production of the, of, of, like this one, like Lady Macbeth? Um, just having one location is very, very different to my own film because my, my first feature film, Innuendo, had just so many Mm. locations including two different countries which just gave me Mm. massive challenges along the way so from that point of view probably not probably would have been easier to just uh, write a film for one location um, and and that contained setting would then make a lot of practical things easier I think Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. so not not 
directly I mean first-time directors I'm sure always struggle with similar kind of things but yeah no I think it's a beautiful debut film and uh, well done on all of them (laughs) and uh, I don't want to spoil it but I really liked the ending because yeah. it, it sort of embraced the ethos of the film. It didn't undermine what it was doing. I think there was a consistency there, which I really appreciated. Mm, yeah. Um, did, yeah. You, did you like the lack of score? I did, yeah, yeah. It is. The soundtrack's quite interesting, isn't it? Lots of sort of, lots of like clunking around and the oppressive diegetic noises of a big house and people moving around and moving furniture and sort of, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. I found really interesting and really somewhat uncomfortable, I guess. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so no, it wasn't really much of a problem for me, I've got to say. Cool, okay. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting yeah. move. I mean, it, it's part of con- to contribute to the claustrophobia. Yeah. You kind of felt totally. like being trapped in there with them. But I also was, um, I thought Florence Pugh's ability to be able to show her transition from being this, like this, this woman who was like being kept to just this complete self-expression. That sort of transition was handled really beautifully, I thought. And in a really in- interesting and unexpected way because she does get a bit, a bit out into the moors a few times. So you do get a bit of a sense of the, the, the location. Yes, she, she takes the air, yeah, as the they air, say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she does take the air several times. Yeah, and actually now that I think about there's that uh, it started, do you remember the opening shot in the church where it's like just focused on her and you can sort of hear the men, all these men around her talking sort of about her. Was that her wedding day? I can't quite. But yeah, this fo- anyway, the idea that this film is entirely focused on this one character is quite interesting too. Mm. I, don't, I don't think, were there any shots, where any scenes where she wasn't in them? Yeah, Not I that I can think of, yeah. no. There was a yeah. few shots in the woods, I think, of people coming and going in buggies, but that might be about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I'd recommend it, definitely. Really interesting film, I think. Mm. Yeah. And you? Yeah, I would recommend it. Yeah, yeah, highly. Mm. Cool. Uh, it's that beat that tells you it's time to open your calendar and get involved in the Melbourne screen scene. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is running from July 9th to 16th with screenings at Cinema Nova, Howler, the Laneway Centre and Longplay Gallery. Highlights include Anne Johnson's short film The Satellite about Australia's first spacecraft, Hannah Conn's Australia's Most Hugged Man, and Ben Davis's Northern Disco Lights and Morgan White's documentary The Slippers about the unusual life of the ruby slippers from the film The Wizard of Oz. You can find out more at mdff.org.au. Highlights from the Aztec Theatre calendar include a double bill of Alien and Aliens on Saturday, July 8th, a 20th anniversary screening of David Lynch's Lost Highway on Thursday, the July 13, and Cinema Fiasco present The Omen on the 14th. Over at ACME, the documentary Citizen Jane Battle for the City, about how citizen activist Jane Jacobs' one-woman movement against developers and urban planners transformed New York City, that's playing until August 3rd. The Filmly Festival, which pulls together the best of the 72-hour film festival, runs on the evening of the 6th, and the Sundance Film Festival shorts play from July 8 to 16. Finally, a 30th anniversary screening of John Dewigan's The Year My Voice Broke is taking place on July 8th. And if you missed Hidden Figures, a film we all liked, you've got a chance to catch that at Acme, where it's playing from July 7 to 18. Um, so, Sarah, given you're here with us and you've, you're between films, I guess, at the moment, um, can you share with us the experience of what it's like to take on quite so much as you have to be able to, be able to make a film? in Melbourne in this day and age? Because it is like no small undertaking to go from sourcing the finance to screenplay to sourcing the crew and the cast. Sure. And it wasn't necessarily always out of a choice that I did all of those things. Um, 
a lot of the time it would be out of there was no one else to do them so I would be <laughs> I would be still driving the ship and 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 doing all of those things um I think if it was if it was out of choice I would just be directing and acting um producing is is not fun per mm-hmm. se I'm sure it is for some people not so much for myself but you know someone's got to do the boring jobs to be able to then um, direct and act and, and do all the all the fun bits as well. So yeah, I guess that's the whole you know coming from independent background. You just do whatever you need to do to get there mm. to get the film made, and no one else is going to make it for you most of the time. With Inwendo, with my first film, because before I I got actually started making it, it it had won a award in in Beverly Hills. It had a bit of interest. I I did a little bit of shopping around the producers in Melbourne and uh, yeah, there there were quite a few that were keen, but I very quickly realized it was going to be years and years before it was going to go anywhere, Mm. if ever, because producers have a lot of films on their slates and and for someone like myself, a first-time film director, to get anywhere on that slate... Mm. (laughs) It's very difficult. So Mm. I think it was either, you know, wait for years, hope for someone to take it on properly and wait for the funding and everything to fall in place. And then maybe it will happen and then I'll be dead. (laughs) It seems to me a lot of people outside of film world don't quite understand just how many ducks you have to line up in a row to get a film made in the uh, sort of system particularly a first-time filmmaker, but even uh, people who have track records. I mean, there's so many different forces that need to align. I mean, it's a miracle that anything gets made, I guess. (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, yeah, those those things not falling into place, that producer coming on board quickly, as as quickly as I would have wanted to, um, then I decided to make it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And just little by little, actually had a conversation with a director of Rompus Stomper and he was someone who was one of the directors that that really encouraged me to go ahead and, and make it myself and he said you know was just just do it bit by bit just you know film weekends or whatever you can do film nights or whenever you can get people together and just do it bit by bit and don't even expect to do it as a one big lot um, and that's exactly what I ended up doing was um, in the end the shooting took about nine months mm. um, it wasn't any longer in terms of days it was 40 days and that's quite usual for a feature film but it it was just spread across nine months time which is unusual yeah um so yeah that's that's how you can do it you just <laughs> pull all the resources that you can think of together and and make it little by little so for the listeners could you just tell them what innuendo is about like how do you synopsize innuendo uh innuendo is a psychological thriller and the leading character is a life drawing model and it's a story of a of the bad twin Mm-hmm. Would that be a good... That sounds pretty accurate, you, You've yeah. seen it, I so. have seen it, yeah. <laughs> um, How would you describe well, it, Well, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I d- certainly the psychological thriller part, I think, is very interestingly represented because it's not often done from these perspectives. And I think that might have been partly why it was would have been such a battle to be, or would have taken such a long time to go into production if you hadn't taken on all the roles you had because it's not such a typical film. Like if you're saying, I'm going to make a horror film, it's going to be shot in a high school, I can do it over a summer break or something, then that's a much easier sell. But to bring on something like this where you're doing, you know, playing more than one role, you're wanting, you know, creative control, you're wanting, you've written it and you're directing it and you're going to put it together the way you want to, then that's a, maybe a harder sell than somebody who's 
going to do the loved ones too or something like that sure and and again the directing i wasn't always going to do that i was i was going to be quite happy to give it for someone else to direct okay. um and and that's when i spoke with for example jeffrey wright and uh, and a few other very established directors and and but i think what you said about creative control was became an interesting point at that point because because i i found that they would have made significant changes to my story as I had written it. And I didn't want to do that to my story. I wanted to keep it how it was. And because it had already won this award in, in Beverly Hills, I can't, I had, you know, I had the belief that it was good enough as it was and it mm-hmm. didn't need any major changing. And that was um, a screenplay award? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that was another thing that kind of just fell onto my lap that I had to end up directing it. Mm, okay. <laughs> so sure, I would have found directors that were less experienced than myself that would have been keen to direct it. But I thought at this point I had already directed um, five short films. So I thought, you know, if I can't step it up, if I can't find someone that's more experienced that wants to take it on, then I might as well do it myself. Mm, okay. And did you find it tricky to be directing and acting? Not because I had done it before. All of my short films were made on this same concept of writing, directing, producing and also acting in them. And I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm, I can't recommend it for everyone because you have to be in several different brains at the same time. Acting brain is very different to producing brain and, and directing brain is different one again. And you sort of have to be able to transform between all of those brains with a not much time in between when you're on set so uh yeah it's definitely a challenge but I'm I've just grown into it now I really enjoy it and, and for me it's more about just delivering the story and whatever that story needs and you know the story needs there to be sandwiches for the crew so as a producer I make sure before the day that someone will make those sandwiches but the story also needs an actor and if I've written it as a writer at least as a writer I don't often have to be on the set which is good mm, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, if, if as a writer I've, I've written a story that's best for an actor like myself which I often do then I'm there to act it if, yeah, if that okay. makes sense so yeah it's it's a complex process but it's one that I find a lo- lot of satisfaction from mm, okay um, I'm interested to know like how it is how do you feel working as a woman in the Australian film industry? Whether you feel there is any different treatment, or there's any sort of preconceptions, or if there's a, if if it feels like a sort of a men's club, like a lot of industries tend to. I've never worked as a man in the Australian film industry, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of difficult to <laughs> answer that question from that point of view. But no, uh, of course, this I think any country most countries in the world it is still difficult more difficult to be a female filmmaker than it is to be a, a male counterpart and and a lot of it is things that you know you can't really put your finger on it's it's just underlying attitudes and and um you know preferences and stuff like that of course there's also very practical situations where you notice that you know because I'm a female I get treated differently in this situation um for example I get hit on Mm. in professional occasions and and I I sort of think that does this happen to men (laughs) as much as it happens to women and I don't again I Mm. don't know that because I'm not in a male's body but uh but no it's it's an interesting question whether something like that is is acceptable in a workplace (laughs) yeah yeah. i'd be interested to know um once you've 
stopped filming and you've put the thing together, what next? Where does the what's the sort of afterlife of the film uh, in terms of the distribution landscape now? Certainly, for a film like my film in window, um, so often when you go with the traditional model of getting your funding from the film funding bodies, you already have your distribution in place before you even go into production. So you know it's going to be on this many screens, on this many cinemas, and uh, then it's going to go there and there and there. So those kind of structures are already in place, whereas when you make an independent film, there's no guarantees of anyone ever seeing that film. Mm, unless yeah. you keep pushing it. So in my case, I had my film first. Uh, then I started sending it to festivals. Uh, then I attended film market with it. And from the film market, this was the American film market in California, I found a sales agent for it. Okay, and, and then from that, then that sales agent can push it for me and find distribution. So uh, could you just explain to listeners what the American film market is? Is it a gathering of filmmakers and, and business types? Yeah, so it's um, it's a big hotel, actually, interestingly. It's like one massive hotel and all the rooms have been transferred into film offices. Mm-hmm. So it's sales agencies, distributors, uh, production companies, and then independent producers like myself trying mm. to sell their, their films. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating concept, actually. And similar to then Cannes Film Market, or there's one in Berlin, there's one in Hong Kong, there's a few film markets around the world, but certainly the American one um, and and the Khan one are the biggest ones of the year. So yeah, it's just a lot of pitching your work, showing trailers, talking to either sales agents or distributors or producers, whatever it is that you're after when you're there. Mm, yeah. Okay. So are you equally selling yourself as much as the film when it comes to these things? When oh, you're... absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's all about <laughs> you know branding yourself as it is about branding your work and. Mm, okay. And how is it? How is it different to Khan? Because I'm dying to know what it was like for you to go to the Cannes Film Festival. That seems so crazy for somebody who's not even landed distribution in Australia before they're heading overseas to to like to spruik it. Yeah, um, I think when I went to Cannes, I was in a slightly different position because at that stage I then had my American sales agent, and what I didn't realize was that when I was going to go there. They had actually plastered my posters all over their booth. Like half of their booth was wow. was filled with Innendo posters. And this sales agency has a lot of titles, like a lot of big titles and classic titles. And, and they just decided to really push mm. my film this year. Great. So that was kind of really humbling <laughs> experience. <laughs> and, and, and even just to be able to be there with the sales agent, apparently that's not very usual. Most sales agents sort of prefer the filmmaker not to be there because they might just be on the way <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. but luckily my sales, a- my sales agent was very open to me being there because I just wanted to learn about that sort of things as well like how the whole sales process works and mm. how, the dis- how, how you have those conversations with distributors what are the things you say what are the things you don't say and, and, and just learning all of that as well because for me as a filmmaker I think that's a really valuable lesson to learn what do people want to buy? What kind of films they do buy and, mm. and what kind of content sells? I mean, as a filmmaker, as a director, I don't really care about that stuff. Like, I just care about my art. But then as a producer, I have to care about that too. Yeah, okay. So, but as a as a setting, um, Khan was uh, spread across quite a few different buildings and, and 
um, venues, uh, so a bit more spread out. American film market was really nice actually because everything was underneath the same roof pretty much. Cannes was, it felt a little bit more like a party mm, than a market okay. to be honest. And I think it's because they've got the film festival there at the same time as the market, whereas American film market is only market and yeah. there's no festival. So is there a lot of crossover between the buyers, sellers and then the red carpet paparazzi bonanza that's happening just down the road? Not actually. Like a lot of the buyers aren't even interested in necessarily going to all the red carpet events. Like they're just there during the daytime to buy films and, and that's it. And, and not even, you know, these are people that have been going like several years and, and they don't care about the whole glitz and glamour anymore. They just want to do their work. And, mm. and so the, they are a little, like, yes, it's all there in the same place. It's right next to each other. And some people, like like myself, because I was there for the first time, I was interested <laughs> in a little bit of both. But yeah, a lot of the kind of people that have been there for a long time aren't interested in that side of it anymore. Mm, okay. But did you, so you got on the red carpet, am I right? I, I did, I think I saw yeah. Some yeah, that. I was very lucky. I got, I got on several times. <laughs> <laughs> but are you there, are you on that red carpet as Sarah or are you on there as a director, actor, producer, or all of those things? What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't feel like there is, you know, Sarah in me anymore. I'm just, I'm just a... I'm just my writer, director, actor, uh, producer persona. Like it, there's no definite, like there's no separation for me. That's I live and breathe that character, if you like, and that's all that matters to me. And you know, that's um, I don't really consider myself as having free time because I'm always working if I have time. Mm, okay. <laughs> But did you get to see much at Khan? Like, how, what was it like? Was it crazy? Was it flashes going off all over the place? Yeah, I think the, the craziest experience was I got tickets to the 70th birthday celebration. Yeah, it was all very hush-hush. No one really knew what was going to happen. So most of us got into theatre first, us that aren't all that famous yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were sitting there and... And then all of these people started arriving, like there was Pedro Almodovar, there's Tilda Swinton, there was David Lynch, there was like, there was like 11 different Palm Door winners, Chain Campion was there as well. And I think they counted like 120 different invited guests, so actors, directors, producers that are super famous and they were all all here in, the, in you know, the same building and, and um, that, that felt quite special and I'm you know I'm not someone who I don't know I've, I wouldn't think of myself as a stargazer but that moment was really quite special just being in the same building with some of your biggest idols mm, biggest yeah. uh, Roman Polanski was there yeah, yeah for god's sake like people <laughs> whose films I admire so deeply just to be able to be there um, mm, with mm. them was quite special wow that's brilliant <laughs> Congrats. Is there anything you can say about what came out of Khan? Like deals, um, connections, that sort of stuff? It was a positive experience, I'm guessing? It was a very positive experience. What I learned was that everything takes a long time. Mm. So <laughs> hardly ever these deals get made at the market. So you start the conversations at the market and then a week, two weeks, even a month later, you might sign something. Right. Uh, so those conversations are currently happening with my sales, between my sales agency and a few distributors. Mm -hmm. And it's looking very, very good. Excellent. So hopefully uh, maybe in your next episode you can tell some good news. <laughs> Cool. Um, what can you say about what you're working on now? So I've, I decided to just launch onto my next feature film straight away. 
I've heard so many stories of directors that make their first film and then don't do anything for several years, if ever, because you just get this pressure and, and I guess bigger expectations. And, you know, I don't know what it is, but a lot of things stopping you after you've made your first one. Mm. Certainly a lot of things stopping you before you even make your first <laughs> one. But yeah. but even after that, it doesn't become any easier. So I decided, you know, I'm just going to push on. I'm going to make my second one as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I'm very far into the pre-production of my second one and soon to be shooting Westmark Effect. Great. Okay. And is there a place people can go to find out more about this and your other films? Yeah, so Facebook is probably the easiest, or Twitter. So both Innuendo Movie and um, Westmark Effect both have their own uh, Facebook sites. My name is Sarah Lamberg, that's S-A-A-R-A, Lamberg, L-A-M-B-E-R-G. So you can just find me on Facebook even, I'm very approachable, if you forget the names of the films. <laughs> <laughs> Great, well, thank you so much. That's thank awesome. you. Andy? Are you okay? Yeah. Sure, I'm, I'm fine. Good. Well, I had a really nice time. Yeah. Me too. Of course, you know, I've always had a really nice time with you. Same here. But... Yeah. You understand. Uh-huh. Well, the food here was excellent. I'm going to recommend it to my sisters. How many stars did it get? Three and a half. Uh, so now we come to the part of the show where we're going to count down our top three women on the edge. Now this is a fairly um, this was inspired by Lady Macbeth, um, both I guess the original character from the Shakespearean play as well as the uh, character played by Florence Pugh in the film Lady Macbeth. Anders, can you run me by how you decided what a woman on the edge um, constituted? <laughs> oh, that's a good question, and I think I have three different definitions or three different <laughs> selections. But what did I think? I was thinking who were some interesting female characters who may be a slight deviations from the standard way, the misogynistic way that women are often presented on screen, but also women who might be sort of on, on the verge, on the, if, if I think back to um, 20th century women, this idea of a woman mm. on the verge of either a breakdown or a breakthrough. Right. So, yeah, something, something liminal, something about change, reckoning with what it means to be these three different characters, I guess, is what right. I've gone for. Okay, cool. If that makes sense. It's yes, a, bit, a bit of a waffly <laughs> thing, but yeah, yeah. And Sarah, did you have a did you have any particular interpretation of the phrase woman on the edge? Not really. Quite similar, kind of just interesting characters that are multi layered and uh, more than two dimensional. How many dimensions can you have? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, just uh, you know, we just we too often or see too too um, simple characters, I think, on screen, and and so I'm interested in characters that have several layers to them. Mm, okay. Um, I took them as being women who are quite powerful and possibly on the verge, like you were saying, of breaking down and breaking through. Not quite crazy, but certainly subject to oppressive forces and they display unusual resourcefulness. And as the band Pantera once said, they um, exert vulgar displays of power. 
So oh, I, I, like that. I use that as like a like what, how are they expressing their power, exploring femininity, I suppose, on screen and how it's changed as well quite a lot because quite a few of my choices are fairly old ones. Interesting. Mm. What was your number three? So my number three is Margot Channing in All About Eve. So I, l- representation. <laughs> I love this film so much. Um, and I love this is a I, I think this is a delicious portrait of insecurity in the acting profession. I mostly love that this character for or this film for Betty Davis's sort of iconic performance. She's this diva of the stage who does not suffer fools gladly, but she's also well aware that younger upstarts are chomping at the bit behind her. The most notable of these being the titular Eve, played by Anne Baxter. It's such a delightfully camp film, camp film, and there's a lot to like about watching Eve sort of come for Margot and her career. Mm, Davis yeah. is a real sort of force of nature too in this movie. There's this incredible movie I saw. This is one one of the moments I realised I was a gay man was when I saw this movie as a twelve year old and absolutely worshipped Betty Davis in the party scene. There's this party scene where about halfway through the film, Marilyn Monroe pops up. It's one of her first film uh, performances. Anyway, there's this amazing scene and Betty Davis gets like progressively drunker as this party goes on. And she's very sort of over the top and it's just really fabulous sort of capital A Hollywood acting. Yeah, um, yeah I love it. I love this movie. So <laughs> that's my number three. Yeah. Brilliant. That's going to be a tough choice to be. Um, what was your number three, Sarah? Um, I've picked Tilda Swinton as an actor and she's got so many beautiful mm, yeah. roles. But this one in particular of e- Eva Kaksadaurian, I think that is, in We Need to Talk About Kevin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and what I find interesting about that film is obvious that so often women play mothers but but in this case mm. it's a mother that's that doesn't really like her child uh first of all isn't very keen to be mother in the first place but then gets a shithead of a little child that isn't very likable mm. and then what do you do with that and yeah she plays the the all the nuances of the role beautifully the only thing that i would have wanted to see in that film was that the child would have been a bit more likable like i think it would have been even more interesting if the mother just doesn't like the child, even if the child is yeah, likable. Yeah, I think that would have been, that maybe that's the film I need to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a fascinating character. It's so divisive. It's so interesting how many people have different readings of that film and, and the book as well. Um, my number three was uh, one of the most relentless and beautiful films about vengeance, and that's the 1973 Japanese film Lady Snowblood which I believe I mentioned on a top three maybe like nine months ago. Um, this is a Japanese action thriller directed by Toshio Fujita and it's adapted from the manga series of the same name that came out a few years earlier. The whole film begins with the birth of a girl called Yuki in, in a woman's prison in 1874 who is revealed to be the progeny of a rape. And Yuki is learns that she's born and raised purely for vengeance and she's trained with a priest and then she commits her, her life of avenging the rape of her mother and the murder of her father and brother. So she's a really, really tragic figure because she's this innocent child who's born you know, with this weight of sin. But she's also really, really good at causing these fountains of blood to spray across the screen as she progressively moves to try and track down these people. And it goes on. It uh, became hugely influential to other films, most notably Kill Bill, which ripped off almost every single frame from it. Um, but it's also a really good example of an economical, low-budget film. It spawned a sequel as well called The Love Song of Vengeance. But the real reason I think she's such a powerful character, Yuki is such a powerful character, is because of Miyako Kaji's presence. And she has these amazing eyes, this is way of staring at the camera, which you feel like could have just replaced pages of dialogue because she's so great at being able to show this sort of heartbreak, this tragedy, but also this complete force where you know you're about to die if you come across her and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it got released on Criterion Collection last year, both both those films, and I reckon they're worth seeking out. Cool. 
I will. Tarantino doesn't rip off. He pays homage. Sorry, homage. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> my acres and acres. And <laughs> lots of homage. My number two is Wanda in oh. Barbara Loden's 1970 film Wanda. So for a long time, Barbara Loden's fascinating career was overshadowed by that of her second husband, Ilya Kazan. But that has recently started to change, and I thoroughly recommend tracking down her 1970 film Wanda, her one and only film, which I think is actually all on YouTube if you go looking. Loden directed, wrote, and starred in this film, an extremely raw and... it's. I don't know, sort of lived-in portrait of a woman moving from roadhouse to roadhouse in small-town America. It has a really strong and almost sort of indescribable aesthetic, this film. Not all films can be said to have a texture the way that Wanda, Wanda does. It's sort of like, bam, the, the aesthetics of the really grainy, uh, intense acting style as well. Uh, it's it's as if you're sort of mainlining this woman's personality through the film's aesthetics. The sound and the imagery just really, it really hits you. And it's it's a pioneering work in many ways. So, yeah, I, I Yeah, that's really fascinating. Have you seen film Wonder? No. Uh, because it was, it's a, it's really interesting because so many people assumed that it was just Elia Kazan who just given a film to his wife and you know, basically wrote off her entire contribution mm. for a long time. And it won an award, I think, at the Berlin Film Festival, but it was pretty much... Yeah, Venice. Venice yes. Sorry, Venice, yes. And then it sort of it got, sunk yeah, with it got Pretty much ignored in America, but now it's so great to see it being re- rediscovered like this. Yes, yeah, and it comes up every now and then in in rep screenings. I think Acme played it last year or a couple of years ago, but yeah, I I love it. It's a fantastic, really interesting film. There's a lot in there, I think, um, and you know, I, very tragically, she died. I think not even a decade later, quite mm. young from breast cancer. And what was your number two, Sarah? Uh Tina Prandon. So Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah oh. so, so a young woman uh, struggling with gender and sexuality issues and, and uh, in a small American town where anything different is, <laughs> is not only highly frowned upon, but suddenly she gets bullied for her choices and, and, and by women and men alike and, and just in this really difficult situation of just simply trying to be herself. But mm. there's there's this outside pressure of everyone fighting against that. Yeah, yeah and this amazing work. constant tension throughout the entire time you see her on screen. Just like at any moment, this thing could fall to pieces in a really really brutal way. It's so intense, so dramatic, but it really works. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, great choice. And as I know that you and I would be in danger of a serious bollocking from our absent co-host Eloise Ross <laughs> if we didn't include Phillips D- Phillips Dietrichson or at least one other notable femme fatale from the noir genre. Um, so she's like, the, in my view, anyway, she's like the archetypal, most amazing femme fatale in cinema history. So she's played by um, Barbara Stanwyck, and this is the film was, of course, Double Indemnity. And it's, I think if you consider femme fatales as being like amazingly powerful seductresses and masters of manipulation, then uh, she's like one of the finest. Double Indemnity is based on the real, real, the real life story of Ruth Snyder, who was a woman who seduced an insurance agent, who and they together connived to kill her husband and and profit from the the double indemnity payout. On well, in the real life case, it was spontaneous acts of violence was what she insured against, but in the movie, it's um, accident. So it's just in this in the case they're trying to um, organise him to fall off a train, having previously killed him, of course. So it's just this, the entire thing is like this. This guy has this quite you know decent life, but then he he kind of he falls completely. He's almost completely powerless to Barbara Stanwyck's ability to be able to just get what she wants and get, and even convince you as a viewer, knowing that this is totally wrong, goes against everything you stand for. And I can't believe it was even made at the time when you come to think of just how transgressive it is and how amazing she is. And you know she didn't really want the role because she thought it was too unlikable, but then 
the more she got into it, the more she was like, no, actually, this is the best role I've ever been given. And if you haven't seen Double Indemnity, I suggest watching it very soon. Cool. Uh, So my number one is uh, Chantal Ackerman's mother in News From Home. I only saw this for the first time last week, I've got to say, and it it blew me away. I've owned this on DVD for years and I can't believe I've only just seen it. This is such a magnificent film. So if you're unfamiliar with Ackerman's documentary, documentary, the visuals are basically New York City streetscapes, which she has filmed mostly with a steady camera. And so she mixes these shots of uh, sort of early 70s Manhattan with voiceover readings of letters that her mother has been sending her. And we learn pretty quickly that Ackerman sort of upped and left home for New York City completely out of the blue. And it's clearly had some sort of effect on her mother and her family. The tone of the letters becomes increasingly melancholy, passive aggressive even. Her mother sort of alternates between updating her daughter with sort of the news from home and inquiring as to why her why she never replies properly uh, why won't she come home that kind of stuff so it's a really interesting portrait of both late 70s man or early 70s, like 70s manhattan lots of wonderful sort of anthropological footage i guess of of people walking around and doing stuff and then you've also got overlay overlaid on top of that this relationship between a mother and a daughter through the lens of the mother's letters to her daughter. So I was really, I found it really emotionally affecting and and quite a beautiful sort of languorous film. I'm absolutely dying to rewatch it. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary. Very, very personal portrait of a city, but also this women's relationship and and how that, that's all mixed in together in one giant um, Mm. sort of melting pot, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful film. Um, Sarah, what was your number one? Well, in my opinion, no one does characters, interesting, edgy and still believable characters quite as well as Tot Salons. And I've chosen the film Happiness. And I've been very, very naughty with this question because I've got three characters as my number one. Because they're they're the three sisters in the film. If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. So there's Troy Jordan. She's the depressed hippie artist. There's Helen Jordan, the cynical erotic novelist. And there's also Trish Maplewood, the the patronising conservative older sister. And just that dynamic there, how these three sisters uh, work and, and don't work together is just beautiful and just so edgy and believable characters at the same time and and i gotta give also a little bit of credit to philip seymour hoffman for a beautiful (laughs) performance i've been so naughty with this last one (laughs) i think we can forgive you for that (laughs) but yeah beautiful film overall and and yeah interesting female dynamics i guess between Mm. the three sisters do you think they have any influence on your creations Oh, I love his films. Yeah, definitely. If I can, if I can capture even a little bit of his madness, I'd be very, very happy. Mm. Palindromes is one of my mm-hmm. all-time favourite films of the twenty-first century. It's yeah. totally up there. Tot Salons, you need to make more films. He does. Come on, have come you seen, on, you can do it. Have you seen Wiener Dog? I really want to see it. I haven't seen it yet, though. No, I haven't. No, no. no. has that even got distribution here yet? I think it's just played at the Palace American Essentials. Oh right, festival. yeah, I did too. That's about it. Yeah. It's my understanding that he's one of those directors that's really struggled to get funding and distribution as of late and it's it's just incredible such a beautiful art house director and you know there's there's audience there out there for films mm, like that for sure totally um so my number one is portrayed by the australian actress judith anderson and i think she is pretty much done the definitive interpretation of mrs danvers who is the creation of daphne du maurier in the movie rebecca alfred hitchcock's first american film 
And through a combination of obsessive love for her dead mistress, um, Rebecca de Winter, and an equally passionate hatred of the young woman who's replaced her, played by Joan Fontaine, um, Rebecca is, I think it's really underrated as a Hitchcock film. And I know it's an unpopular decision to say that it's one of my favourites, but I think largely that's down to Mrs Danvers, just a power. The way that there is such this bond between a mansion, one of the greatest English mansions ever put to celluloid, I think, and this woman who was the housekeeper and also the like the mistress or servant, I suppose, of, of Rebecca. She's like simultaneously like this derisively pathetic figure and also an incredible bully and manipulator and she variously lures Joan Fontaine's new Mrs. De Winter with this... With, 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 she almost um, pushes her to suicide at one point. She put, pushes her into this incredibly humiliating role at a, at a, a very um, austere party where she's trying to make friends or trying to find her feet, I suppose, in this new mansion where she's married to Laurence Olivier, who plays Mr. De Winter. Uh, there's also a reading that was um, aired in the movie The Celluloid Closet. Mrs. Danvers has a lesbian desires for Rebecca and there's a scene where she shows her underwear and she talks about how they were made by nuns. So this certainly suggests a reading of that, but she's certainly, a, a, undeniably, she's a woman who's um, had a lot of oppression and servitude in her life and I think she's a really interesting character who's later become an archetype in thrillers and horror movies as well. She's, there was a version of Mrs. Danvers played by Cloris Leachman in Young Frankenstein as well and she's now this kind of red, readily identified archetype of... A woman on the edge. What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? Not only in this room. It's in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Did anyone have any nearly but not quite, or any things that they wish they could have fit into their top three? I had about 7,000, but I don't think we've got time for oh, all of that. Of if I can get a few in. Okay, I'll say um, uh, the character of Björk in Dancer in the Dark, oh, yeah. uh, Selma Yezgova, mm. the, the woman that goes blind and, and there's all the betrayal from oh, from her boss. And that's, yeah. yeah, that's... When I saw that film, I didn't feel like talking for about a week afterwards. Yes, but so it was, well. yeah, very yeah. impressive, very impressive. Who else is there? Well, there's obviously uh, still Alice. That film is just a beautiful. You were talking about that transition, and that's that's a transition from someone who's very very intelligent and highly successful in her work, and then falls ill with dementia early on. So that was by Julianne Moore. Um, mm, who else? Yeah, uh, let's leave it there. I'm sure you have some that you <laughs> want to mention as well. I'll just do a quick shout out to the character of Mildred Pierce in Joan Crawford in the 1944 film, and also the Todd Haynes HBO movie Kate Winslet played her. She's Definitely a woman on the edge. Um, I was going to make a mention of Jade Fox from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, who's this archetypal manipulator who uses the dishonourable method of poison rather than the honourable method of sword to kill people. And this is also, he portrays a a bitter, poisonous spirit. But that was also because she was taught by a man who seduced her and then refused to teach her the things that he said he was going to teach her. So, again, it's male manipulation into making these women crazy a lot of the time, I think. Um, cool. Thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 29 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be incredibly grateful. And you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Sarah Lamberg. Thank you very much. You can do it.